0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast, created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
1: Welcome to Services Australia. You
0: have called the Centrelink Employment Services Line. We are currently
1: experiencing longer than usual wait times. We are working as quickly as possible to process all claims. The agency is continually working to protect your account security. That's the dulcet tones of Centrelink. I'm tired of hearing them. Maybe you are too. I'm Iris Lee, and you're listening to 2022 Disability Day Rest is Survival broadcast on 3CR Community Radio. I'm going to unravel the absurdity of the Disability Employment Services, also called DES. I produce this program as a white settler on the stolen lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples. The fight against punitive systems is the fight against the settler colony. Now, what is DES? After decades of cuts to social security, a concession to the social struggles of the 70s, just under 300,000 disabled people in Australia, after some medical certification end up on a stream of the paltry $47 a day job seeker payment called DES. The scheme's propaganda promises personalised support and means participants don't get forced onto work the Dole program. DES is lucrative with the state granting $1.3 billion for private DES providers to compete with each other for disabled clients. In my experience and the experience of many others, DES works against the needs of disabled people to care for each other and rest and to even assist them find work. The one-year job outcome access rate is a measly 1%. We hear from Catherine and Yale about their experiences in the DES program. We explore how the DES program is itself disabling rather than supportive. Disabling employment services is a more real name. Finally we look to Solidarity and Dreaming Beyond DES. First we hear introductions from Catherine Kane, an advocate for raising job seeker.
0: Hello, everyone. My name is Catherine, and I'm really happy to be here today.
1: Thanks heaps for joining us. So first up, what was it like being on Des as someone also who couldn't work? All right. So
0: I tiny bit of background. I have a chronic illness that I think that the simplest way to describe it is my body doesn't make energy properly. Now that I am really nice and stable, I'm able to leave the house twice a week with a support worker for maybe an hour or so. So imagine that this is before that, and I'm not on the disability pension, so I don't have money, I don't have resources, I don't have support workers. I am trying to do everything myself. I'm trying to stay alive myself, feed myself, keep myself clean, all of that basic stuff. And on top of that, I have this hoop to jump through, where once a fortnight, I have to drive 20 minutes into town to go and sit in a room for 10 minutes while a guy ticks a box and says, yeah, we've got nothing for you, see in another fortnight. So this incredibly limited capacity to do anything, and I have to spend a huge chunk of it on make work that does nothing to make my life better except ensure that I don't get my very small payment taken away. It was dire. And of course, I kept asking, can we do this via the phone? That would be infinitely easier for me. It would save me on this petrol that I can't afford. It would save me this energy that I don't have. S- save me staying a day in bed after I do this. And they were like, no, you can't. You can't do this via the phone. You have to come in.
1: Yeah, just that total lack of regard for your needs there and just a waste of all these resources going into this system. For
0: no benefit. No benefit whatsoever. Not for them, not for me, not for anyone except a a little tick box somewhere that said, Yes, Catherine jumped through that hoop. That was the entire output. Like I had a couple of decent individual case managers or whatever they're called nowadays over that time. I had a couple of decent ones. And they well like, no, it's clear, like You can't work. We get that. There aren't that many jobs that will allow you to work for 20 minutes and then take a three-hour nap. Understood. A couple of them would try and they'd find like, oh, I found a thing about writing articles. It's only 15 hours a week. And I'd be like, (laughs) (sighs) no, but thanks for trying. An attempt was made. But, yeah, the fundamental structure of the system was like so misaligned with what I needed. And what my situation was, that it was never going to work, ever. And there is no way to to recognise that or to make a change.
1: So frustrating. I guess we're at this stage that the government is talking about more and more reforms of this system that seems to be designed in in ways that doesn't work and if the outcome is... What is intended by design, it says a lot about what the government's doing, if this is their intention and what to do with disabled people on the DES. There's also a linkage between the DES and the National Disability Insurance Agency. And at the start of November, the ALP government announced a pilot program connecting NDIS participants with the DES for interested Disabled people, not NDIS. I'm wondering if you could speak about linkages between the NDIS and the DES.
0: They sound like they should have perfectly aligned goals. Hypothetically, they have perfectly aligned goals. Like the NDIS and the NDIA are designed to support disabled Australians to live their lives, to do all of the things that everybody else wants to do, which includes employment, if that is a thing that they are capable of doing under circumstances that make it possible for them, whether that includes workplace accommodations or whether that includes more flexibility than a number of employees are usually willing to offer. And the DES, hypothetically, (laughs) has the same sort of thing but within the narrow ambit of employment, like helping disabled people with the resources, the connections, getting all the things they need to be able to be employed. If the DES actually did that, linkages with the, the NDIS would be possibly slightly redundant, but they would be perfectly aligned and everything would be fine. Like you can talk to the NDIS about getting some work accommodations that help you work, or you could talk to the DES about getting the accommodations that could help you to work. That's not the reality. The NDIS is, for its flaws, which exist still has the stated goal and it is mostly aligned with the goal of helping Australian disabled Australians live their lives. a normal life in the community. The DES, so far as I understand it, I don't even I cannot even beautifully articulate what their actual goal is other than making themselves some money because if their stated goal was, to help disabled Australians enter the workforce and to get long-term employment, none of the structures and some of the incentives, but none of the structures of the DES are actually set up for that. Like they don't actually do the thing. One of the things that's great about the NDS when it's working correctly is there's this process where they find out what you need. Congratulations, you're on the NDIS. And now we have this long process about what are the areas of your life that you need help with? What are the resources that you need? Do you need like mobility aids? Do you need this? Do you need that? What supports do you need? The DES has none of that, so far as I'm aware. <laughs> so I certainly didn't, and I've never spoken to anyone where their first interview with the DES is like, so tell me what your access needs are. Tell me what you need to become employed part-time, full-time, whatever works for you. There's, it's... Welcome to the DES. Sit down. Here are 20 checklists, at least six of which are completely irrelevant to you. Here's a bunch of forms where we're just going to tick a bunch of boxes. See you in a fortnight. There's no linkage saying, here are the resources you need. Here are how we're going to get the resources. This is what our funding is for. This is what we're for to help connect you to whatever it is you need. That process seems fundamentally missing slash broken slash working as designed, where none of that happens.
1: Yeah, I saw a lot of like pillaring and scepticism of that announcement. What's the intentions here? Especially because we know in recent decades, like moving more and more disabled people onto JobSeeker has been the main intention of the government as a sort of like austerity measure and making it more and more difficult to get onto the disability support pension.
0: Yeah, it took me two and a half years of legal fighting for me to finally succeed at it.
1: Mm, that's such a long, time-consuming battle,
0: and energy-consuming. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was devastating. But yeah, facing the idea of the rest of my life on Jobseeker was just like, well, that's not life. I've seen the estimates that the current estimate is that there's more than four hundred thousand people who should be on the DSP, but are on Jobseeker
1: instead. Yeah, huge numbers of disabled people, they're abandoned by the state in that way. And yeah, so picking up the overall theme of today's broadcast, Disability Day, which is Restless Survival, what do you wish theirs was?
0: I wish it was a disability-specific version of what the NDIS is supposed to be. Like, if you are capable of working and you... Like, disabled people are people and a lot of us want to work. I miss working. I enjoyed working. And if they mis- miraculously came up with a set of circumstances that allowed me to do so, heck yeah, I would. Everyone wants to do something that's meaningful to them. Everybody wants to contribute. Everybody wants to do something, whether that's traditional work or volunteering or whatever. Everybody wants to matter. I'm not going to start doing inspiration porn. I'm really not. But uh, (laughs) disabled people have a lot of strength and a lot of capability that actually is derived sometimes from being disabled. Like we've been resilient for a very long time. We've learned what is and is not important in our lives. Our values are often really strong because if you have to give up stuff, you give up the stuff that isn't important. So as a result, if you make the right accommodations, disabled people in your workplace can not just be a, I guess they'll do because we couldn't find anybody who wasn't disabled, but they can be absolute superstars in your workplace. So along with my energy limitations comes a good deal of brain fog of when I get tired, I start losing words and start getting very incoherent. So, before I got sick, I was probably more of a waffler than I am now. And since more and more since being ill, I've my communication has gotten more succinct, more powerful, more accessible, less self-involved, like all of those things where you're raised to be like, oh, you're the smart kid. Smart kids are the worst communicators. <laughs> Smart kids who have had to go through the process I've gone through become much better communicators. And I'm just picking one example out of 60 zillion that is a consequence of my disability. I can go on a radio show and hopefully make good sense to a bunch of people who are listening to me in ways that I don't think I could have done beforehand. And so that's just one example out of 60 zillion of the ways in which disabled people are not just something you have to put up with in your workplace, but can actually be amazing in your workplace if they get the accommodations they need. And that's what the DAS should be, a resource centre of everything from, okay, you need an adjustable desk. We'll make sure that your workplace has an adjustable desk. Or, oh, you've got these lighting problems? Okay, here's how to manage those. And here's worksheets, here's resources, here's some funding so that we can get you the shoes you need so that you can stand all day. or Whatever it is, the same way the NDIS is designed to be all like, Yeah, you can go out in the community if you have the walker that you need to maintain your mobility. So let's get you the walker so that you can go out into the community. What do you need to make that happen? Let's make that happen.
1: You just heard from Catherine Kane, a Raise the Rate Advocate. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio's 2022 Disability Day Broadcast, 8.55am, streaming live at 3cr.org.au and digital. This year's theme is Rest is Survival. We're examining the deep problems of Disability Employment Services, or DES, which really disrupts our rest. Next up, we hear introductions from Yale, who I invited on because of her incisive way of analysing systems.
2: Hi, my name's Hannah, or Yale. I've been navigating the job service provider system and Disability Employment Services for about eight years and four years respectively and have had a wide range of experiences through different organizations on the very bottom end of the scale and some organizations that like while the system is still inherently flawed are trying their best.
1: It is a mixed bag in my experience as well. In talking more about that, like the purported function of Disability Employment Services or DES is to help sick and disabled people find work. Yet yeah, only that's only happens one percent of people, and there's one point three billion dollars that go into it. That's around four thousand three hundred dollars per person it goes to these private DES providers. What is your experiences like? Been telling you around what's the f- actual function of the DES?
2: They pay lip service first and foremost to what they believe their stated function is under the government jurisdiction. Primarily, their main role is to police people who are on a welfare payment and to make sure they're engaging with a system. It doesn't matter what the system is, but just engaging with some kind of representation of a government body to make sure that they're meeting whatever arbitrary check marks they have for their given situation. That's their primary role, but they don't like to acknowledge that part. They believe that they're there to help you get back to work or get a job in the first place. But in my experience, that's usually some of the last things that they actually want to do based on the ways that their income works.
1: What's it been like in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic? Obviously, there was a, the time when... didn't have to talk to them. That was like a brief six months time. My experience was like the providers wanted you to be back in person and wouldn't wear a mask in a small office, but mixed bag as well. Some providers are accommodating, but it's like you have to do all this effort moving around.
2: So I was with a disability employment service provider called Expression Employment before the start of the pandemic and during the start of it. But after a mutual obligations period of, not having to interact with the system, the provider shut down the service because it was facilitating LGBT disabled people in that sector and they lost the contract that they had for that service. So I was referred to Wise Employment. And initially after the after the little break, they sent some demanding text messages to me demanding that I... Like, without even having met me or talked to me, that I come into their office for interviews and intake process, in spite of them not knowing anything about who I am or the state of my health or whether that would be possible, which was like very rude and made me pretty upset and pretty stressed out for a while. And managed to make it clear to them that there was no circumstance in which I would be willing to do that and that I would be happy to allow them to work out some accommodations that were necessary if they wanted me to engage in their programs. So I primarily have phone calls or video appointments.
1: Yeah, I had a similar trajectory in that I was with Expression and they shut down and I was referred to WISE, but they didn't get me onto the LGBTI WISE stream, so I got referred to these other WISE people and then they were pushing all this staff didn't really understand like my health conditions had, and then they and then one day they were, like asked me about are you transgender or something as if it had something to do with like me being sick it was really it was just like a complete mess and eventually they were like oh we should refer you to the LGBT ones but I think like my overall understanding of the system it's like a system critique it doesn't matter like how nice they are they have to perform a role they have to keep their job yeah
2: 100 like you could have an absolute sweetheart for someone who's the supporting person for you but at the end of the day they're still like a cog in an oppressive machine there's useful things that they can do for you if you know the right questions to ask but they're incentivized to kind of provide you with the very least which is not a support network, it's like you're you are the product here. you're not someone receiving support, okay,
1: yeah, I think it like forecloses the possibilities. It's like I'm on some wait list for some mental health service that's ongoing. I get finally get around to it, don't get on with the person, need to request another one, and I'm on the wait list for another year, and yet the state puts money into these people that talk to you every few weeks it's like pretty clear like what the state cares about is punitive stuff
2: that's reflected by the nature of who some of these organizations are like i haven't seen max employment as a disability and service provider but i have seen them as a job service provider and their parent company is maximus solutions which they run in australia various neoliberal projects from prisoner transport to patient care In the United States, they are responsible for prisons, and the same in the UK, amongst a multitude of outsourced government programs. And interestingly, Max Employment is like the place where I experience the most transphobia, the most anti-Semitic, just filth and vileness. It's unsurprising to find out that organisations like this are responsible for the alienation and anxiety of people From all walks of life, let alone as an organization being directly linked to deaths in custody, the people that go for these jobs and work in these industries have a lot of blood on their hands and they don't take too kindly to it when you try and point that out.
1: The theme of this year's Disability Day broadcast is Rest as Survival. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on how the punitive logic of the DES program and the logic around back to normal in the COVID 19 pandemic prevents rest as survival.
2: First and foremost, on an individual level, myself and like a lot of other people who are experiencing chronic health situations, breakdown of medical support systems and just other complications due to the nature of disability may or may not already be in a position like me where we're visiting a specialist or a GP multiple times a week. And sometimes those appointments re- require like multiple hours on public transport to get to areas where you can afford to see someone. Sometimes taking entire days from us in the search for recovery and, and that takes rest. And then you throw in the mutual obligation requirement for people to have to do the same thing, to travel to an office, to jump through hoops, to re- keep continue to receive social payments. Just increases the exhaustion and exacerbates our conditions and increases stress and is the opposite of helping shield marginalised and vulnerable people, the whole generally considered approach to surviving this pandemic. But the capitalist and institutional push to bring COVID normal, it further pushes people like me out of public life even at the margins and the fringes where you think people might be looking after each other a little bit better, that still felt just as much. And then you throw in also that people who don't have disabilities are catching a virus that has the potential to cause them a a lifelong series of health complications. And then also cutting the amount of time that they have to recover to force them back into institutions because they need to keep their job or they need to keep money, and the government's not willing to support people, thus increasing the spread by not providing forms of support that are necessary in order for people to be able to isolate and still look after their communities. It's not really in line with that at all. It's about trying to get back to as much exploitation as possible while cutting as much out of the social spending budget as they possibly can, because it's at the end of the day, it's about a budget sheet, not people's lives.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. There's been like decades of cuts to social security, and that's not to like romanticize things in the '70s when they were a little less punitive and weren't as small poverty payments. But there is this progress narrative, and I'm particularly thinking about like respectability politics in trans circles that disassociates from illness, disability or madness and how that throws trans people who are disabled and trans under the bus. And I'm also thinking about the disability rights movement and a lot of mainstream rhetoric around choice and work that the state can easily co-opt to cut welfare to create like these profitable DES provider markets and extract more and more labour from disabled people.
2: This progress narrative is in so many different spaces and in the the disability sector of the employment service providers, the people who work for them will do the very bare minimum while newspapers print that $1 or $3 billion is being spent on people who are a waste of space. So like we have in the media narratives that say that our lives are meaningless, a burden to everyone around us. And then... We're forced to navigate these institutions that frame themselves as helping provide us with care, but what they're really providing us is more stress, a tangible and implicit threat of violence if we aren't able to cooperate in the ways that they decide that we are capable of. Meanwhile, these are people that don't have like medical backgrounds and don't understand the conditions that a lot of us are living in. And the general public misguided at every turn about what the true nature of these institutions is like. And you're always going to have tokenistic advocacy groups that are used by the state to dismantle grassroots movements, whether that's in LGBT activists and politics, and then having institutions that the state can provide funding to that make it seem like they're doing something for us. When in reality, these institutions and organizations don't represent the vast majority of people in our communities. So like the myth of eternal progress is just like this white supremacist idea that we live at the end of history and things are better now than they've ever been because they have to be right. It's part of the like capitalist fantasy about Western imperialism and cultures of subjugation that you don't have anything to complain about. Things are better than they've ever been. It's a silencing tactic.
1: Yeah, for sure. Do you have any further thoughts on like where to from here and like resistance and solidarity against these systems? It's a big question.
2: Yeah. Please wear a mask when you're in a public space. Me and every other immunocompromised person that I know who is, happens to take a big step back from any kind of social or public life are sick of begging you to take the mildest of precautions that help prevent more harm happening to people in our communities not only for ourselves but also for you i I can't overstate that enough apart from that like the disability employment service providers can provide you with more than you know talk to each other find out what you've gotten from them they can buy you more than just some work clothes They can pay for things that they will try and pretend that they can't pay for. Use that for what it is, if you are capable of doing so. But really, these institutions are never going to be our saviour. And the only way to provide the meaningful support that each of us need in our lives is stronger grassroots movements of people who are willing to do work to help look after each other. So whether that's through mutual aid groups like the Food Angels who help provide food, to a sliver of our community, if there was more people doing things like that, people willing to help people get to and from appointments so they don't have to risk their health through public transport, which is not exactly the safest place to be during a pandemic, and also just righteously inaccessible at the best of times. To so just like helping look after each other and understand our needs in like a mutually beneficial way. We can all help each other if we are prepared to.
1: You just heard from Yale, ending there on the solidarity we need to build a new world from the ashes of disabling employment services. You're listening to Rest is Survival on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, streaming live at 3cr.org.au, digital, and on your community radio app. A special thanks to Pauline Fajuna and 3CR for putting together today. There's lots I haven't touched on properly in this program. The white supremacist state restricts migrants from any social safety net for many years. The social security system particularly punishes First Nations peoples in this settler colony. I invite our settlers on these stolen lands to ask how we can act in solidarity against the border and the colony, in particular, pushing in solidarity with the struggle for land rights, such as supporting land back initiatives, such as one of Kanak. That's W U U R N of Canuck, Kanak, K A N A K, in your search engine. So go out. I'm dreaming a revolutionary future where Sandalwood music is but a distant memory that we dance to, punked up in an accessible party of our dreams, and we get all the rest we need.
0: Thank you for calling.